Welcome to The Disappearing Mind, a unique podcast helping you find clarity and support along your dementia journey. Now, join National Dementia Trainer and Coach Don Platt for an all-new episode. Hello and welcome to the podcast today. My name is Dawn Platt. Today on the podcast, I have a colleague and friend. My guest today will be Brittany Talheimer. Brittany has her doctorate in physical therapy. She is also a registered occupational therapist and she practices in Florida. Brittany, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Welcome. So today um, we have a topic that I get very excited about, especially when I talk with you about it. We have a similar passion. But before we get into that, I want to talk about you. You're a wife, right? You're a mother of a very active toddler who's going to be two years old very soon, as well as you have a career, a professional career, and a practice where you work with seniors, not just seniors with dementia, but with seniors in general. So a little bit of personal note about Brittany. Brittany's grandfather passed away and had dementia. And she was part of his caregiving and part of the whole process. So one of the things that I see clearly in you from the day I met you is that how that impacted you. So share with us, Brittany, about your practice and also about how your grandfather's dementia impacted you personally, but also in your professional practice. Okay. So my grandfather was actually diagnosed when he was 62 years old. So he was kind of forced to retire early during that time period. I was still in high school. So I watched my grandmother be his caregiver, which was very, very difficult. And at first I didn't quite understand what was going on. And my grandfather would say, I need to go to work or I need to go to here. I need to go to here. And he thought he could drive and do things. And my grandmother didn't quite understand what was going on. So my grandma would let him go. And the last time he was driving to a NASCAR race and we live in West Virginia. And at the time he drove all the way off into Tennessee somewhere and we didn't hear from him for 48 hours. And it was actually the police calling us. So I've experienced him leaving and being so confused. And during this time period, he would get physical therapy and occupational therapy for strengthening and balance and different things that were going on with him at the time. And I remember as a young kid and I looked at her and I said, why do you do what you do? And she goes, because I love people. And she said, I love taking care of people. She goes, and you seem to be the same way. She said, maybe physical and occupational therapy is a route you need to go. So during my finished high school, I went to college. I got my undergrad and master's in exercise physiology. And then I ended up getting accepted. I did this big research in college and got accepted into school at University of St. Augustine for both PT and OT. So my grandfather, it was kind of a blessing to see him go through what he did in a way because it geared the way I went in my life. And so now he had dementia for several years. I watched him transition from my grandmother passing away from being the caregiver to going, putting him into a skilled nursing facility because we weren't able to care for him at home because I was in college and my mom was still working. So we transitioned him into skilled nursing and we watched him end his last years there. So I've been through all the transitions, even seen it from the power of attorney side. So that kind of led me to where I am now. And I graduated both with PT and OT. And then now my I run a private practice across the state of Florida doing outpatient 
and kind of an inpatient home health type and assisted and independent living and memory care. So I have a passion for dementia and caregivers and education and therapy. So that's kind of where I am now. Wow. That's a great story. I know that story, but I wanted you to share it with our audience today because we have a a variety of people who will listen to the podcast who maybe are the granddaughter or the daughter or maybe someone who has dementia or will have dementia in the future. But, you know, we're not a stranger to one another. We have collaborated on some projects of passion in and around dementia. You know, we're going to get into that in, in, in just a while. But just historically, Brittany, you know, one of the things that I appreciated about you is obviously I'm older than you and I've been in healthcare. Uh, you know, for a long time. And over the course of my career, I have worked with many physical therapists, occupational therapists, and speech therapists in uh, many different settings, home health, and more acute type settings and subacute type settings. And generally, historically, people who had Alzheimer's or dementia often were overlooked for any kind of treatment including if they fractured a hip or that sort of thing, because the thought was that they just couldn't remember. So they wouldn't be able to progress. And so a lot of therapists that I have worked with over the years, that was kind of their mindset. But you never had that mindset. You always feel like there's something that you can do for most people you meet with dementia. How did you overcome that stigma if you ever even had it or ran into it? And, you know, why do you think so differently that you can help people live a more quality life by doing occupational profiling and physical therapy? What makes that different about you? So I think it really goes to what your passion in life is. So a lot of therapists, they like to do the outpatient, working with sports, doing different types of individualized settings where I've always had a passion for people with dementia. And I think that really drives working with those people. So I have a passion. At the end of the day, they have to put their shoes on just like everybody else does. So it's kind of working with them on different levels, increasing the stimulation they have. So it really, it wasn't really a stigma for me because I came into it having experience with my grandfather, but knowing the the clinicians that I hire, one of the questions I ask them are, do you have a passion for people? And do you have a passion for people who might need a little more help than the average person? And that dementia person, they fit into that category. So when I hire people, I want to know, are you going to work that extra, you know, work harder to relate to them and to give them the therapy they need? And I've actually seen so many great people turn into amazing clinicians because they grew in a passion for these people with dementia. So I think there is a stigma out there with, you know, oh, they can't retain a home exercise program. So that means they don't qualify for therapy. But that's not really it. We just have to give them a consistent schedule and a consistent caregiver to provide that. So then they're able to do the home exercise program. So it's kind of looking at all the different pieces of the puzzle differently. And I think that's what we need to do more often with the dementia population. Well, I'm sure that many family members are going to be happy to hear that. They hear, oh, they have dementia. That's the reason they're having the behavior. Or, oh, they have dementia. So we really don't expect a good outcome. So people are going to be happy to hear this discussion because I know that it's true. I've seen you do it over and over again. It's my passion and and my thought and goal. I never say no, but I'm sure you've run into that stigma 
like with other clinicians and things. How'd you overcome that? I have actually, and I had to actually sit with them and say, this is someone's mother. This is someone's brother, sister, family member. They have grandchildren. I'm like, you have to look at them as if they're anybody else in this world and someone that you love. And I really think when you find a love for someone, you'll do anything for them. And that's really what we have to do in the therapy field is we have to connect with people, especially with dementia, because they need that. They need that connection. They might not retain your name, but they'll recognize your face or your your voice or the love that you show them. So anytime I run into a therapist that's kind of like, oh, I don't go into memory care. I'm like, well, but why are you in this profession? Because we're in this profession to help other people. So it really comes down to learning to love people and to be able to work with that population and understand and build those connections. Absolutely. And I know that we have multiple stories, but We're casting hope on the podcast and I want to encourage families today to fight for the care of their loved one or themselves to not take no for an answer. You know, when one door closes, another one can open, but just for the sake of the podcast, and I could probably come up with names. Is there a special story about someone who, uh, you know, had dementia and does die, but quality of life is important. Staying as independent as possible. Can you share a story of maybe someone who may not have had that, but because you went the extra step, they had a lot more quality of life until the time they passed? Yes. So I actually have several stories, but there's been a couple and there's one in particular, there was this resident in Jacksonville and they didn't have many family members. They really, they had went back and forth hospice, not hospice. And I kept hearing, I was like, I feel like this person needs therapy. And when you don't have someone to advocate for you or even a nurse or somebody at the time that they just kind of stayed in their room all the time and they isolated themselves. So what I found was I fought and talked to the doctor and I said, can I please have therapy orders? Let me give this person a chance. And they were in a wheelchair at the time. They hadn't walked in a while. And I picked her up for therapy and I said, and she was like, well, why do you want to work with me? And she kept saying, who are you? Why are you here? And it did. It took four to six weeks for me to establish a great relationship with her. And after that, we started singing together. She would come out for activities. She was eating better. She ended up gaining 10 to 12 pounds. And Throughout this process, she bought into therapy. She bought into a relationship with me and she actually improved and she lived for another two years when hospice was saying she was less than six months. So there's so many stories like that where I get relationships. Even today, this morning, I went and it was one of my residents in memory care. It was her birthday. And I walked in and I took her. She loves sushi. I brought her sushi and a cake and balloons. And she looked at me crying and she said, you know, this is the first time in three years anyone's ever brought me a birthday gift because she has no family. And she said that meant so much to me. So there are so many situations that I've been into when everybody gave up hope or they didn't have support or family. And the therapist is the one who's in there to show them, hey, you still have a purpose in this world. You have a great quality of life. And it's just letting them buy into the great quality of life and doing different things. And I've actually seen huge improvements in their life and a longer lifespan because of it. That's great, Brittany. And it, that's why we're in this business. That's why we do what we do is, is to provide those moments on their journey and provide quality of life. And for those of you listening, those of us in the profession, we get far more than we ever give. I'm telling you, I just the stories about the rewards of knowing some of these people and their lives and people with dementia, even end stage, 
I have received so much from their lives and uh, I'm just really happy to be a part. But let's let's switch over to today's topic, right? Because we want to talk about people who are really interested in this topic. They don't have dementia, but they know what it is. Obviously, there's a lot of information out. And people are concerned about brain health. So today I want to get into it with you, physical activity and boosting brain health. So experts are saying that exercise is one of the greatest ways to boost gray matter in the brain and promote a healthier brain. We've talked about this before, and I think there's lots more opportunities. People are talking about it earlier but even seniors and when i say seniors obviously i think that term now means over 65 i'm not real sure but what can we do and does it really make a difference with brain health Brittany? yes it definitely does and i see it on an everyday basis and it's physical activity so then a lot of people question what is physical activity and it is a planned exercise. It doesn't mean that you go to the gym and you have to run 10 miles or two miles or one mile. It's planning. When you go to the grocery store, I'm going to park as far away as possible and I'm going to walk in and I'm not going to stop or sit down when I'm in the store. It's having exercises planned. It could be walking around the block. It could be going to the mailbox back and forth several times a day. It could be, I'm going to stand up from my chair 10 times. It's having a goal every single day and doing that exercise to meet the goal. And that exercise is improving your brain health. It's increasing blood flow. We're increasing heart rate. We're stimulating the brain and the body. And we've seen so many improvements in physical and cognitive health just by physical exercise. So I 100% agree with the physical activity increasing your brain and the health of your entire body. Well, expert studies are saying that um, not only does it help with your cognitive reserve, your emotional stability, critical thinking skills, and all of that, but what about those that have not, like me, right, made it, exercise has not been a regular part of my life or upbringing, is it too late? And if it isn't too late, what types of things specifically could I put into play? When we think about, especially this time of year, starting exercise, you know, we think about gym memberships and things that maybe we're not going to carry out. So when is it too late? And what are some practical things that everyday people can do to pick up exercise for brain health? So I'll start off with it is never too late. So I tell this, I work with 90, 100 year olds all the time who have never worked out a day in their life. The women do not like to sweat. And I tell them, we need to do this. We need to do this every single day. And they've bought into it. They understand now the importance of it. But how do we start? I think that's the first thing. And a lot of people are like, oh, gym memberships. That sounds like a great thing, but at the end of the day, it's not realistic. It can be very difficult at times to get into the gym every single day, or you're dealing with parking and traffic and everything that comes with that. So I always say, let's start at home. Let's start with functional movements. Standing up from a chair is something you'll have to do for the rest of your life. Even if you're in a wheelchair, we're going to have to be able to stand to get on a toilet or into bed. So I highly encourage people to work on sit-to-stands. And that just means sitting in a chair without arms or if it has arms on the chair, crossing your arms across the chest and practicing standing up. 
That's such a basic functional movement that's going to help you for the rest of your life. So that's a strengthening exercise. Endurance is very important. So endurance is the ability to do an activity for a long period of time. So that could be walking, going every day you plan to walk in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening for a certain amount of time or a certain distance. And that's just testing yourself and telling yourself every day, I'm going to do this. And after each day, you're going to be able to do a little bit more, which is going to be able to meet higher goals and you're going to feel better overall. So I always say, let's start exercise at home, get in a routine. And then once you feel like you've maxed out of your home or you can you need more difficult things we can buy some weights some therabands or you can get a gym membership there's lots of options but it's never too late to start exercising to increase your physical and mental health great that's great news uh, Brittany. i know you work with a lot of independent seniors so let's talk to them i know that you you know, help them set up plans, you motivate them, uh, you even do outpatient type workups and things. So how much exercise is recommended for an independent senior? And uh, what kinds of programs do you set up for them specifically? Is it customized or do they come to one of your classes or how does that work? Okay, so with the independent seniors, we offer so many different classes and it's same in the community. Anywhere you go, there's classes that are offered. We have different strengthening classes, balance classes, yoga classes, Tai Chi. There's all different classes that are going on all the time. So people are able to attend those classes. And I highly recommend if you have classes available, whether it's at the YMCA or different places out in the community or in assisted living, independent living, there's so many things to do. So I highly recommend recommend getting involved in some of those classes. And I recommend and the statistics say that you should be doing four to five days a week of exercise, which is 30 minutes of moderate exercise. That means you're increasing your heart rate, you're doing something a little more than your usual. So it might be walking 15 minutes, it might be and then doing 15 minutes of some sort of strengthening or sit to stand or different exercise like that. So we highly recommend everybody doing four to five days a week at least and we do encourage seven days a week for people to at least get out and walk for 30 minutes. So it really just depends on what you have access to if you don't have those classes available. I always recommend to people that if you have access to the internet or you have access to YouTube anything like that that you can put different classes on. We do yoga that's through YouTube every single day in one of the facilities and the residents, the senior residents are invited to come all the time. So if you don't have access to these things, you can always go through the internet and find different classes that fit your needs. That's great. That's great advice, Brittany. The experts say that exercise alone, and you recommend three to four times a week, right? 20 to 30 minutes, I'm assuming, but that it can actually decrease your chance of getting dementia or Alzheimer's specifically 35 to 40%. That's a huge, huge number. But I want to talk to the people who not only want to prevent, but when we get a diagnosis, the families I coach, the families I work with who have gotten a diagnosis, they seem to lose hope. You and I both treat people at early, middle, and late stages. So let's kind of break those down because I think that there is hope to live a quality of life. And, you know, the thing I want to say to families today or to the person who has been diagnosed with MCI or any type of dementia, we know that most dementias, the irreversible kind, 
will lead to death. We understand that. But let's not confuse the fact that there are opportunities to address the symptoms. And I think that oftentimes we don't talk about that behaviors or other preventative things you can do to decrease decline, slow decline, and have a more quality outcome. So let's talk about someone who's been diagnosed. Maybe they're in the middle stages. They're looking at opportunities. What would you recommend to that person or the families for the middle stage? And then we'll do the late stage because I have seen and you've seen such a difference when we're doing exercise and programming routinely with people who have dementia and getting the diagnosis is not a time to give up. It's a time to begin to fight. So what are the opportunities that people have in say the middle and late phases of dementia? So I first, I always say, even when you're diagnosed, it's great to get as much education as possible because when we don't know something, it can be extremely scary. So the first thing I always tell people when they're diagnosed is to be educated as much as possible, get as much info, get anything you can on the diagnosis and kind of what the future looks like. And I always want people to know every person is different that has dementia. Every person, they have different behaviors. They react differently to different medications. So just get as much education as you can. That's the first thing I would say. And the second thing is consistent routine. I think that the best thing I've seen in all my experience is that routine can actually help to slow the process of dementia. In some cases, I've even seen slight improvement because of having a routine. And from my personal experience, my grandfather was living at home with my grandma. And when he was diagnosed, it was in the middle stages at that point. And he would sit and just watch TV all day. And then once he got into the skilled nursing facility and he transitioned over, it was a consistent routine. And we actually looked at him and he was better. He was cognitively being able to respond quicker. His problem solving was better. And it was because of the stimulation. What I'd like to tell everybody in middle and late stages, it's not too late to stop stimulating their brain. Different senses, his hearing certain things, tactile, being able to feel, doing different vibrations, different sensations onto their hands, different smells. There's so many different techniques out there that can help people in the middle and late stages just to consistently stay where they are and to maintain where they are. So I would educate yourself on what's available and reach out physical therapy, occupational therapy, having a caregiver, somebody who can assist with some of those sensory things for the person with dementia. Absolutely. Brittany, we both know that oftentimes people don't die of their diagnosis. They don't die of dementia, Alzheimer's, or otherwise they die of complications, often infection, but many times it's due to falls and fractures that lead to death. So how important is it to stay mobile as long as possible? And how important is it to the late stage person to keep them mobile? What are the secondary benefits of that? I would say keeping them mobile is the most important thing when it comes to their physical appearance and abilities, because once they start falling, it becomes a consistent thing. And once we have a fall, most of the time what happens, we call it the cycle, as they have a fall, 
they fracture a hip or they fracture something, they end up in the hospital, they have surgery, they go into skilled rehab because of the dementia, certain rehabs will take them, won't take them, and they kind of get in this cycle. So then something happens at rehab, they end up back in the hospital. And throughout this whole process, their dementia, it worsens because they're having surgery, they're having anesthesia, there's all these things they're going through during the cycle. And it's hard for them to go back to their normal environment and be at that level. Most of the time, they've declined cognitively from this whole transition. So a fall is one of the worst things that can happen for someone who has dementia. And how do we prevent falls from happening? Most of the time, it's from balance training. So where balance comes from is there's three sensory systems. There's vestibular, there's vision, and there's proprioception. So proprioception is where you are in space. So that means if you walk out to the mailbox on this Florida grass, it's uneven. It's really hard to walk on. So they have a difficult time walking, which can throw their balance off because their proprioception isn't reacting the way it should. In vision, if we have someone who wears glasses or they're not wearing glasses, but they need glasses, that impacts our balance. And vestibular is our inner ear. So if we're hard of hearing or we have difficulties with our ears, that's also going to impact our balance. So you throw all these sensory systems on top of dementia with the lack of safety awareness, the problem solving, not being able to react as fast as we need to, they're at a high risk for falling, especially over the age of 65. So we have to really work on our balance. So the question is, how do we work on their balance? So there's different techniques. I always recommend getting into therapy to at least get a foundation of where they are with balance and where they need to be and different exercises you can do at home, especially as a caregiver to assist them. And I would just make sure that you're working on their balance at some capacity. The second part is the safety of the home. If you have pets, cats, dogs, rugs, different obstacles in the bathroom, if we don't have grab bars or a shower chair, different assistive devices, whether it's a, a rolling walker or a cane, if we don't have some of those in place, we are at increased risk for falling. So I think having that skilled physical or occupational therapist do an assessment is a step in the right direction direction. Yes, Brittany, that's really good advice. So let's just address the family right now who, how would a family go about getting this? They're listening to you, they're hearing, they know mom or dad is having some safety issues, balance issues. It's a fearful thing. So they try and get them not to get up, not to walk. They really limit their mobility. I've seen that over and over throughout my career. Let me just bring up a story right now. This would be a good place to put it. I had a client many years ago that lived in a community and she began to have a little difficulty walking to the dining room for meals. So they decided they would push her in a wheelchair or on a wheeled walker and that would be easier for her to do. But what really happened is she began to lose mobility. It wasn't that she couldn't walk. It absolutely was not. But if you stop them for walking over a period of time, they will forget how to walk. They will lose muscle strength and, and their ability to be mobile. And it's going to cause you to give more care, but it's also detrimental to their health. This particular woman developed pneumonia and was hospitalized. And in the hospitalization, they cleared up her infection. Everything was going good, balanced her nutrition, gave her IV fluids, and a therapist came in one day. Now, the therapist was not aware that she had not really been walking for a year. So began strengthening exercise, balance, and began to work with her. And she began to walk down the hall. 
just the short part of this was is that everybody was so shocked because nobody had considered that this was a learned behavior, not a physical deficit. Have you seen that happen? That we overprotect someone and so therefore we do something that's detrimental to their health? I see this all the time and I see it because it might be that it's the person with dementia who has a fear of falling, but most of the time it's the caregiver who has a fear of falling. So they automatically put them in the safest position, which in their opinion is the wheelchair. But what we do is we completely limit their physical abilities. And then we have a difficult time then transferring to get on a toilet or into a bed or into a chair. So I always encourage people walk, do as much walking. If it is, if they're a high fall risk, let's change what they're walking with. Maybe it's a rolling walker. There's rollators, there's up walkers. There's so many different options, but I always encourage walk, walk, walk as much as you can, because once you put someone in a wheelchair, it can be very difficult to get them back out because with their dementia, they're afraid to stand up. They're afraid to transfer. And then we start dealing with these different behaviors that wouldn't be present if we wouldn't have put them in a wheelchair. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is really good conversation. It's something for family members to think about. Stay as active and independent. Promote as much independence as possible uh, with someone who has dementia, whether it's you or your loved one. Don't take away independence. And what I mean by that is if they can do part of something, not all of it, let them do the part and only assist with the part that they can't do. Don't do it all. It is detrimental. It's going to make them decline quicker. And you're going to have to provide more care because you're taking away their independence. Okay, Brittany, let's shift a little bit here. You and I have been colleagues before. And I want to talk about a topic that is very interesting that we ran across. And I think some of our audience might be quite surprised to hear our little story about the program that we put together, Retrofit. But let me kind of set it up so people can kind of understand. My background is nursing. I am a dementia coach and a dementia practitioner. And generally, I oversee dementia care communities. I also work with families in all stages of dementia and offer advice. Brittany is an expert in physical therapy as well as occupational therapy. And so she works with activities of daily living as well as all types of physical strength and exercise we were colleagues together and we worked with a community, a memory care community that had 24 residents, 24 seven. This was a new state of the art community. They had a great program, a great dementia care program, beautiful community. Everything seemed to be going right, except it wasn't. So there were about 24 residents there. And what began to happen was they had a memory care program. They had activities going on, but we began to get complaints and those complaints were, there were major behaviors. There were, I don't know, seven or eight major behaviors. So I'm not talking about people just acting out or whatever the case, they were behaviors that could prove uh, to put people's safety, I guess, in jeopardy is how I'm going to word it. So these are things like fights and tearing things off the wall. These are major, major behaviors. And so Brittany and I went in and we began to take a look at what we could put together to engage people, to try and divert 
Okay, so oftentimes when people who have dementia develop behaviors, the first thing that most people will think about is medication. And that's great, except the first thing that we need to look at is engagement. A couple of things. Medication doesn't always work. It's not always impactful. And even if it is to minimize the behavior, it takes a while to work. It's not instant. Engagement in something meaningful provides value. It gives that person an outlet. So Brittany, let's talk about, and why don't you address for a few minutes here, what is meaningful activity and engagement? And what did you see when we were looking at all these behaviors? Because it wasn't like we had a dud activities program. It just wasn't meeting the needs of those high functioning residents. So tell us a little bit about it. So what we found was there was so many different behaviors, like Don said, and we needed to break down how can we engage with all these people at the same time, but that are at different levels. So we started this program, the retrofit program, and we had to get people to buy in. So we first started with assigned seating, and then every day, the consistent schedule, they would sit in those exact same seats. And the first thing we started with music, every person was assigned a song and they started and they could only do a few words the first day. And then by six weeks, they knew every word to their song. And they weren't hard songs. We started with whether it was row, row, row your boat or twinkle, twinkle, little star, everybody had their own song. And it gave them this importance feeling. It gave them a purpose. And every day at the exact same time after breakfast, they would come into the living room and they would sit in their exact seat. And when I pointed to them, it was their turn to sing. And it started with, we had 40 some falls in a month. And after starting programming within six to eight weeks, our falls have went down to less than five falls. Our behaviors of smashing glass in the hallway down to nothing. They would just come right in like it was their job, their purpose into this programming. And the programming hit different parts of their brain. It started with singing and then physical activity. And then we would break into different groups to where they were with people of their same cognitive level and they were able to participate. So all morning, their brains were stimulated. We didn't have time for those behaviors. Their brain was so focused on what their purpose was within the programming that they weren't trying to run away or to hit other people or to think about when they were in elementary school. So the progress we saw within this group was amazing. And the programming worked so well to decrease behaviors and falls that it continued for months and months and people continued to live. The people who were on hospice or not doing well were so into the programming that we actually saw an increased quality of life. So the programming showed me that putting time into these people and giving them a purpose and working on stimulating their brain can really improve brain health, physical health, and long-term quality of life. Absolutely, Brittany. And so for some of our listeners, they may think row, row, row your boat is pretty elementary. We also did Sweet Caroline and girls just want to have fun. And in that, I want Brittany to talk a little bit more about breaking this down. Brittany is a professional and we used an occupational profiling tool to customize and tailor this program to the needs of every individual in the program. So we did things like singing and math and lots of exercise where she worked through every muscle and joint in the body. But Brittany, talk a little bit about occupational profiling and what that's about. Why is that important to the individual and how we use that? Because we had 
people who could do much higher level stuff and they were allowed to. So we catered to every cognitive level and kind of brought it up. So talk about occupational profiling, Allen testing, and why that's valuable to someone with dementia or someone in the future. What we did was we did some objective measurements. So we use the Allen's cognitive test and it was just a test where they do some different lacing and some problem solving and it scores them from a zero to a six. And then we use the MOCA, the Montreal Cognitive Assessment Tool. And we use both of these tools to kind of place them where they are in that moment. And this also was a great tool to give to family members. So then they understood where their loved one was and the cognitive assessment. So what we did was we took those scores and those that were within a point or two of each other, we put them at different tables and we had different tables set up. We had a lower table, the lowest scoring table. They were only able to do the sensory. So they were able to do tactile, different feelings, different lotions, different sensations. And then the next table was coloring. So they would do different things. And then the table next to it was math or different kinds of puzzles. And what we found was that when they were within their same cognition, cognitive level, that they started interacting more. They were talking to each other or they were talking about what they were doing. So we saw this social interaction that we had never seen before. Because what we've done or seen in the past was when we just put people up to a dining room table, we expect everybody to talk and to be social. But if someone feels like they can't communicate or they're not up to that level, then we see people kind of start to isolate a little bit. So doing these different cognitive levels at the table showed us what people were able to do. And I have a story with that. There was this man who sat in a wheelchair all the time, never talked to anyone. And his wife would come in and he'd just be quiet, wouldn't say anything. So I started giving him all these different things. And he started doing math problems. And he was able to do multiplication, division, square root. And he could do it within seconds. His wife was in tears crying because she saw this is something I never knew he could do. So he struggles with certain things, but we tapped into a part of his brain that hadn't been accessed in years. And he was able to do all this math. And it started to bring him out of his shell a little bit because then he could communicate differently. And his wife had this different side of him, this different thing that had unlocked that then she could talk to him about. So this different programming and different cognitive levels, and we tested people every four weeks to see had they shown improvement. And actually through the whole session, everybody showed improvement on those cognitive assessments. So their Allen score was higher. Their MOCA score was higher. We did a mini mental and it was higher. So what we were doing was working on stimulating the brain, which increased their quality of life and increased their physical activity because they were awake throughout the day and happy and moving and doing exercise classes. So the program we did really worked and it was amazing to see as a therapist. Absolutely, Brittany. So for the family at home that doesn't really know what we're talking about, how would they access this kind of testing for their loved one? Because let me just say right here that engagement in something meaningful brings purpose to life. It brings purpose and it changes everything. And when people are engaged in something meaningful, it changes things for them. 
They don't have time to have behaviors. They don't have time for all the other things that we might see and the decline because they are giving back to their community, doing things that make them feel good or that have meaning to them, bring success to their life. And oftentimes that's taken away when they don't have a routine and structure. And we'll get into that on another podcast, how important routine and structure is in the life of someone with dementia critically important, but how would someone access these kinds of tests and who would they turn to, Brittany, to get this for families who are at home? That's a great question. And what you have to do is you need to go see your primary doctor. If you see a neurologist, whoever is overseeing their care, you just need to go in and express that you'd like a physical and an occupational therapy evaluation. And you can even include speech evaluations too, because they do some different cognitive testing. So then you can get a variety of tests and they're going to do an assessment. And you can do this through outpatient if you're able to leave the home to go do these things, or they can do home health. If you're unable able to leave the home and they're homebound, you know, they're safer at home. Somebody can come into your home and it's paid through insurance. But the first step is going to the doctor and getting an order and having it sent off to either an outpatient or home health facility. So you can get those assessments. And then once they do the assessments, they'll assist on self-care skills. So like dressing, toileting, showering, if there's anything you need, safety assessment of the home. But the first step is talking to a doctor and getting a therapy order. Absolutely. That's really good advice. So I'm going to cover this in a future podcast, but I want to bring it up. Retrofit is the program that Brittany and I put together. We saw a huge increase in engagement with people. We saw decreased falls, proven and decreased behaviors with those people that we were working for. And we had probably about a 90% participation rate. That's taking into account all different levels of dementia, but neuroplasticity is the science that we used. And I'm going to be covering that in a podcast here in just a few weeks, but I want to talk about it today. So neuroplasticity is the science that says that the brain has the ability to produce or build, recreate new neurons. And with that, we know that repetitive type of behaviors, structured type of behaviors help with neuroplasticity. We use that science to bring structure and meaning into people's lives. And we do that through connecting individuals with new memories, which connect to old memories and bring them together, building and maintaining what we call cognitive reserves. So learning new tasks. So there are several things that do that. Exercise does that. Learning a new hobby does that. Playing a musical instrument. All of those things will help you maintain what we call cognitive reserve. But Brittany and I use that in this program, and that's where we got our success. So let me just say, Brittany, one of the things that we consistently saw in this particular community, as well as others, is their ability to learn. So they learned all the songs and they learned all the math. And we actually got calls that we had to increase the program. Do people with dementia really maintain an ability to learn? Yes. 
So they do. They maintained every single thing that we taught them throughout this process. And you're correct. We had phone calls. Hey, it's too easy. It's too easy. We need to move them up to the next table. So we did see improvement in cognitive functioning because we were really targeting the different parts of the brain that might not have been stimulated for years. And we see this when people are living at home sometimes. And when they move into a facility and they have the stimulation they weren't used to, we see sometimes an improvement in cognitive cognition because it's they're stimulating the brain. So that's exactly what we saw. We had to increase the activities, how hard it was. And overall, it was amazing to see the neuroplasticity and to see it work in person every single day at this facility. Absolutely. So for people at home, for people who are newly diagnosed, brain health is critically important. Brittany's talked about exercise today. We're going to continue this discussion in future podcasts. But I think one of the things that we have to remember and we have to really push forward is the fact that there are things that you can do to not only maintain quality of life, but to preserve quality of life for the future. I think the fallacy that we see and hear, because we hear so much about one type of dementia or maybe two types of dementia, not all dementias are the same. Not every individual who gets that dementia will exhibit the same type of decline. There are many factors involved in that, nor will they all exhibit behaviors such as wandering or many of the other behaviors that we talk about. There are things that you can do to maintain your gray matter. We're going to talk about that more in future podcasts, but really we have to shift and do the things that we have to do. And new studies are showing, everybody wants to know, um, it's kind of like fast food. What's the one thing I can do? Well, in brain health, it's not one thing you can do. You probably need to pick up most of the things that are beneficial. And we do know that studies have shown that exercise is that one thing. But in addition to that, there are many other things that you can do and we will be talking about in the future. But Brittany, as we wrap up the podcast today, what kind of hope or what would you say to families? I know you're passionate and you and I both love working with families and individuals who have dementia, but what are some of the greatest things that you would like them to know? And what would you like to say to our audience today? The main thing I want to say is to continue to love them through every stage of the dementia. And it sometimes it is, it could be a different person. It could be different behaviors and caregiver burnout is a true thing. But I know that in the end, we have to be there to love every part of it, to be able to look back and smile because you were there throughout all of it. So being present, taking care of them, living in every moment, staying active, having maybe a routine together. There's so many things that just being present and making them feel like there's still a purpose for them on this earth. And I think that's the most important thing you can take from all of this is to just be active, love them, care for them. And I am very passionate, so I do love everybody. But it's just by finding different things every day to be thankful for with them there. And if it is exercising every day at the same time and getting a consistent schedule or starting a new class together, doing different hobbies together, just remember that they're here for who knows how long, but let's live within every stage that they go through. 
Absolutely. Brittany, we're, I'm going to have to have you on. Uh, we will never be able to talk about everything that we have to talk about. But I just want to say to the audience today, on our resource page, I will list Brittany's information, how you can get in contact with her. She's an excellent therapist, very passionate. I've just seen her do some marvelous things. So let me just say to the audience today, I hope that something that we've talked about today on the podcast has moved you, has been beneficial to you both now or in the future. And I hope that you will share this information with friends and family. So while you're on this dementia journey, please take time for yourself, take care of yourself as well as your friends and loved ones. Until next time, try and find joy on the journey and make it a memorable day. Thank you for joining us for the Disappearing Mind podcast. We hope it's helped you find clarity and support along your journey. Be sure to subscribe to never miss an episode, visit our website to suggest future topics, and share the podcast with friends and family.